Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this time of peace, this time of fellowship, this time of dining on the very bread of life, Father. What a privilege it is. May we never become familiar with it, but rather embrace it for what it is. Grace motivated by your love, for your will is to sanctify us in time. We are so very grateful for your patience with us, Father, and the lessons that you've given us along the way and continue to give us. Father, we're so blessed by them. We pray for those in the congregation that can't be here with us this morning, that earnestly desire to be here, but for reasons of illness and what have you, uh, cannot be. We, uh, we pray to you for their return and their healing. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost, those yet to be evangelized by maybe one of us even. We pray that you humble them, that whatever it takes, Father, uh, we just want them to be saved. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Such a wonderful week of messages. If you haven't heard them, uh, do yourself a great service and listen to them. That's all I can tell you. I sound like a broken record, but that's my job, I guess, uh, with sheep. Um, such a wonderful week of messages. As you know, the spirits had a lot to say lately about the love of God, the love of God, and putting it into good practice, not just, I mean, I would venture to guess that everyone here understands at least some part or some good portion of the love of God, uh, having been intimated with it at salvation, having been made new and having been given a thirst uh, and a hunger for it as a result uh, of being a believer in Christ. But again, the love of God uh, and the Spirit has been talking about putting it into good practice with regards to that great expression of love even uh, that we've been contemplating, which is the blessing of forgiveness. Forgiveness, that great expression of love, um, which is forgiveness. Go to Matthew 6.14. Uh, 6, Matthew 6.14. So the Spirit's really been turning our attention to the practical side of things. Not surprising, he seems to do that with every series we're ever on. Um, which I love personally, because then we just we don't have the ability to sort of evade the rubber hits the road uh, expressions in the Bible itself. And so one of those things that we've been contemplating is forgiveness, which is of course an expression of love. Matthew 6:14, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, 
then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's hard language, you see. Again, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Does this mean that God will retract justification from a believer because they are failing in this area? I know there's probably some of you right now that haven't forgiven someone in your life, at least not completely. There's some remnant of it. Um, does that mean that he's going to retract justification all of a sudden? You know, he doesn't forgive your sins positionally? No. May it never be. Jesus was talking about experiential forgiveness. And so there's this idea of a sphere of love and even a sphere of forgiveness. So do not be confused uh, as well. It is a blessing for both sides of the affair. So there's a forgiver and the one forgiven, typically. And if we simplify it, the Bible tells us that there are blessings for both sides. It's not just someone saying, okay, I'll forgive you, here's my blessing. The one forgiving is also very much blessed. And that's what God wants for us. And that's what he is, Jesus is even um, speaking to in Matthew 6. That it, we're talking about the sphere of love. And if you want to eject yourself from the sphere of love, then be an, be an unloving, unforgiving person. That will surely lose peace that will surely detract from your own experience of God's love. And so uh, this is what he's been getting at. So Jesus was talking about experiential forgiveness. Now on the flip side, however, it's a sin not to forgive a person. A lot of people don't think of it that way. But it's actually a sin not to forgive a person, especially for someone like you who knows it's the right thing to do. It's a sin. I didn't say this. You know, you know who said that? Je uh, Jesus' own brother wrote that in James 4.17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. We all know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God wants us to forgive others. Amen? Okay. If you know it's the right thing to do and you don't do it, you're living in sin. So as long as you're unforgiving, you're living in sin. And as we know, that does not come with blessing. That actually comes with judgment or even cursing. So remember, by definition, sin means to miss the mark. So on this topic of forgiveness and love even, Sin, by definition, means to miss the mark, which means that if God's command is to forgive the transgressions of others, then we sin if we miss the mark and don't. As the Word has pointed out over the past few weeks, forgiveness is something as primitive to a believer's faith as love. In other words, these are not disjoint things. Love and forgiveness are one and the same package. A loving person seeks to forgive. A forgiving person is a loving person. And so that's what the Spirit's been pointing out over the past few weeks, that forgiving is something primitive to our faith, even as primitive as love itself. So I was thinking about that, considering the fact that we are inundated 
with sinfulness from within and from without. Without forgiveness as a, let's call it a weapon against the wicked forces in the world, we lose the battle every time. We're going to go home very upset and stuck if we don't forgive. I mean, how many times are we sinned against in a single day? How many times do we sin against our own bodies in a single day? How many times do we have impure thoughts in a single day? So we have to learn even to forgive ourselves. A lot of people are stuck in dysfunction junction because they've made some really poor decisions in the past and they haven't even learned to forgive themselves. And then that's not counting all the people that sin against us from without. So what we have then in forgiveness is a, is a weapon of sorts. Because you know that the kingdom of darkness does not want you to forgive. Does not want you to abide in forgiveness. So without forgiveness as a, quote, weapon against the wicked forces in the world, we lose the battle every time. Forgiveness effectively declaws enmity between parties. It, it drops everything. There's no longer a barrier, if you would, to entry. And so that's what forgiveness does. It declaws enmity. Enmity's, you know, strife, if you would, uh, contention between two parties. And if forgiveness comes on the scene, that is dropped. And we reconcile. That's literally a picture, a small picture of what happens at salvation, right? I mean, God forgave us our sins, and now we're reconciled to Him. So this is the pattern. It's not a new pattern at all. It's just applied in another area experientially, as Christ was talking about in Matthew 6. The Bible also says this in Romans 12, 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, you know what? It's good to forgive. It's good to forgive. So that's a practical example of what was being said, what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil. You ever see two people at a standstill? You wronged me. Well, I wronged you, and you wronged me. Well, you wronged me. Did that even make sense? You know what I mean. I was trying to play both sides, but I forgot to change my voice. Right? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You see two people standing there like, you know. And it's ridiculousness. And you're just wasting your time. And that's evil begetting evil. When the Bible says, do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Someone has to express love and forgiveness. Someone has to initiate. Sounds like God again, doesn't it? At salvation. Someone who is grace-oriented has to initiate. And it doesn't really matter. We've talked about this. You get to a point, and I can speak firsthand on this because this is where I'm at in my own spiritual maturity, so to speak. You get to a point where it doesn't even matter who was right or who was wrong. You just want to be reconciled. That's it. You're not interested in holding a, you know, something over someone's head or, um, or having you know, any kind of ungodly memory of something. There's nothing wrong with remembering someone 
or how you've been burned in the past that how you can't unforget something or you can't just forget something at will necessarily. Um, but we ought to overcome evil with good. And again, the Spirit's basically saying it's good to forgive. There are blessings in it for all parties involved. And that's how we're to look at forgiveness. To my, the point I was trying to make there, at some point, you just say it doesn't matter. Can we just, if I have to forgive you, fine. If you have to forgive me, fine. I'm sorry. Can we just get by this thing? Because Satan's having a laugh over here. Forgiveness is such an important facet of the spiritual life that Jesus gave us a sort of framework to work from in the churches. Go to Matthew 18, 15. The act of or the idea of forgiveness is such an important facet in the spiritual life that Jesus gave us a sort of framework to work from, specifically in the churches. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That should always be our first, if possible. Sometimes the situations preclude it, but you know what Jesus is saying here. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that... By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so Jesus was saying, I need you to be forgiving. However, if a person is refusing to repent, then I need you to protect the flock. It's one thing to forgive. There are people that literally I have thrown out of this church. Hasn't been one in a while, but you never know. And they've never been back. And I told them, you can't come back. I forgave them as soon as they did their ridiculous stuff. It wasn't about forgiveness. It was about protecting all of you. And that's part of what the Bible teaches us up here on the board. I know it's not popular, but that's not the point. Nowadays, what is popular in the Bible? Everybody wants to speculate anyways. But Jesus said, you know, after all that, if they don't even listen to, say, the elders in the church, um, then throw them out. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These were derisive titles to Jews. The point Jesus was making was that someone so impenitent has revealed an unbeliever's obstinate heart. And the key word there is obstinate. A person who's been even shown evidence. Listen, this is what you're doing. This is what you've done. Let's get beyond this. Nope. Well, then the answer, if the answer is no, then you got to go. Oh. I'm like a rapper lately. You guys know what I'm saying? <laughs> the idea is that it's an obstinate heart, someone who's unwilling, even under the weightiness of proof and evidence, that they just aren't willing to repent. 
Thus, it requires defensive actions to protect the church. Because if things are left to simmer long enough, what ends up happening is it blows, right? It's a fuse. Sometimes it's a long fuse. But eventually things blow up. And I don't want things blowing up in my church. And I'm sure you don't. So what you have to do is go over there with wet fingers and go, with the word of God. Say, let's snuff this out right now before this blows up the whole thing. Because I don't want all these other innocent people blown apart because of your ridiculousness. And Jesus had no problem with that. Doesn't that just make perfect sense? What would you expect out of the great shepherd? The one who's here to protect all of us. Who's made promises to us. Who said, you're going to be blessed out if you follow my commands. What would you expect from that individual? Nothing less, in my opinion. Absolutely nothing less. And again, this may seem a bit harsh, but only to the self-absorbed. Only to the self-absorbed, as is the case with any area of contention or conflict, there are always two sides to consider, if not more. We already know the default behavior of a selfish person. They only consider their own side. Because the proverbial you know, world revol- revolves around them. That's a selfish person. The world revolves around them. Everything's through their little selfish, self-absorbed lens. And everybody else can just pretty much you know, go to hell. And they don't really care if they're blowing up something as beautiful as a congregation even. A selfless person, however, not selfish, selfless person, someone abiding in Christ's love will abide in His commands also, such as, for starters, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now that puts a big onus on mature people, doesn't it? Because there are going to be times when an immature believer is doing something they don't even know is wrong necessarily because they're weak. Or because of their weakness, they're in sort of a semi-blinded state. And it's up to the mature individual who can see right through all of it to make an issue out of it. So let me tell you what's going on from my perspective. I know you don't really want to hear it, but this is what's really going on from my perspective. And that is now taking on the burden. Do you understand? Because they're unable. That's the apparent situation. Because this person over here is unable in their weakness to bear their own burden. Well, as far as it depends on us, as far as it depends on from my perspective, I might have to say, hey, listen, I'm going to bear a little bit of your burden and fulfill the law of Christ. I'm going to point a few things out uh, out to you in love. And if I can do it in private, I will. If that doesn't work, maybe I'll bring a couple of witnesses. If that doesn't work, I'll bring it to the church. If that doesn't work, listen, man, we got to part ways until you get your stuff together, until you get your act together. So here's a good question. So we got Galatians 6.2 on the board. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So how do we reconcile Matthew 18.17 with the verse on the board? Matthew 18, 17 says, If he refuses to listen 
tell it to the church, and if all that fails, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you know, it seems almost contradictory. Well, the answer to the question on the table is, you know, how do we reconcile this is context. Both of those verses have context, first of all. But as the Spirit's been saying, context is key in every sense, not just in the Bible, which is a record of ancient life, but in our own lives, even today. Context is key. A loving, selfless person must be willing to bear another's burden. Now listen, this is difficult, I think, for some people. And some of you, if you are young in the faith, you may not get it at all. And it may not appeal to your sensibilities right now at all because you're not ready to hear some of these things. But nonetheless, here I am teaching them. A loving, selfless person might be willing, or must be willing, to bear another's burden by calling them to the carpet. since they obviously are unable to do it for themselves. You need to see what you're doing is totally wrong. But you obviously cannot bear the weight of that reality right now. And you're not seeing it. So let me tell you. You ever have one of those conversations, you're like, I really don't want to have this conversation. I just really, really don't feel like having this conversation right now because it's going to be uncomfortable. There is no way this other person is going to receive this very well. Anybody? I have them all the time. What about you? Less so, since the church itself, I think, is maturing, but it's never perfect. And so what you end up doing is bearing someone else's burden that they are currently obviously unable to bear. They cannot bear the fact that they're the wrong person because they're that weak, you see. And it takes someone else, often more mature or in a position of authority maybe, especially in a church, to say, hey, I'm bearing your burden here. Let's just get this all out and get this over with before things really get nasty. The gracious person might say something simple like, and I'm not saying, you know, write this down and this is what you say, but you know what I mean. A gracious person might say something like, I forgive you, but I stand with God on this and am acting to protect his sheep from disruptive sinning in the church. I forgive you, but I have to stand with God on this. You're becoming a problem, a stumbling block, maybe, for others. And this world doesn't revolve around you, you see. So you don't have the right to be blowing up others, especially in the house of God. That's just a gentle way of saying, you know, hey, listen, since... You can't seem to extricate yourself from your own sin. The rest of us have to ask you to leave us. Be. Until you straighten your situation out. Because there's only so much we can endure. 
And that is, my friend, very biblical. We just read it. Those are hard decisions to make. You know why? Because unlike the secular proverb, you know, rolls downhill. No, it doesn't. Rolls uphill. Which means I end up with the burden most of the time. I have to have a bad, a t difficult conversation with people. Because everybody else in the chain of command is too weak themselves. Which I try to avoid like the plague. But sometimes it's unavoidable. Because people are that stubborn and that self-absorbed. And it's too bad. Because Satan, again, is laughing all the way to the bank. Satan wants nothing more than to any one of you to sin against another one and forgiveness is not anywhere in sight. He loves it because that's what causes fractures. So what the Spirit's been saying up here on the board, whether it's popular or not, is forgiveness, then what? You mean that's not it? No, that's not it. The Bible clearly tells us, especially in the churches, that while forgiveness is necessary, it isn't the last thing we must consider when dealing with sin. On Thursday, we considered two key concepts that underpin the point on the board, up here on the board, the context of forgiveness. It's true in Romans 12, 18, we must be at peace with all men for as long as it depends on us. But it's also true we mustn't ever compromise our integrity to the body of Christ by turning a blind eye to disruptive sin in the church. Colossians 3, 12, 17. Go there to Colossians 3, 12. Colossians 3, 12. I think most of you probably understand the first bullet. Um, it's the second bullet that seems to give people fits. Colossians 3.12 <clears throat> So, and this, this passage sort of pulls a lot of it together. So, as, though, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Okay, there's a lot in there now. Love brings we believers together, right? I mean, let's face it. The chances are of this group being together other than at this church, except by being our common thread being Christ, is very low. I mean, we're all from different walks. And let's face it, if we didn't have Christ, I mean, we're probably hot enough to like as it is. Do you know what I'm getting at? Because someone ate your stupid cookie from the back thing. Or someone ate the last piece of pie back there, whatever Alice is whipping up this morning. Or, you know, I don't know. People are petty. But Christ brings us together in this bond of unity. Love brings we believers together, and it also seeks to protect and serve each other in the preservation of our fellowship. 
It also seeks to protect and serve each other in the preservation of our fellowship. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does that mean? It means there's a certain protectiveness. Do you understand? I want peace. I want a Sunday morning like this to be peaceful. People can come here, find rest, find peace, knowing that they are protected by God Himself through vessels, through vessels, but nonetheless, by God's grace, they are protected. Well, there's a practical side to that. That's great. You know, oh, oh you know, peace. No, there's a real practical side, just like Jesus said. If you've got somebody that's disrupting that peace, then get them out. Then get them out. Because we're talking about the sphere of peace. We're talking about the sphere of love, the sphere of forgiveness, the sphere of reconciliation, the sphere of grace and mercy. Do you understand? We're talking about preserving that thing. And if someone's trying to explode it all from within, you've got to take the cancer out. That's what Jesus said. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That just doesn't mean go, <laughs> let me put on my smiley face, my Sunday morning smiley face. That's not letting the peace rule in your hearts. When peace rules in your hearts, you're, you're protective of it. Are you not? Do you want anybody robbing your peace? What if I just said, you know what? To hell with all you. And I flipped the thing over. No, I'm serious. And you guys would be very upset, correct? If I started flipping out and throwing stuff at people, saying, I don't like your face. No, would you not be upset? Where would your peace be in that moment? Somewhere out there. It wouldn't be in here. Right? So isn't it obvious that to preserve peace, there are practical aspects to it? There are behavioral aspects to let the word of Christ, excuse me, let the, peace, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I'm protective of it. It's not going to rule in my heart if it keeps getting exploded. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Again, the point on the board, the context of forgiveness. We must be at peace with all men for as long as it depends on us. And we mustn't ever compromise our integrity to the body by turning a blind eye to something disruptive in the church. And again, it's that second point that seems to make contemporary Christianity, and I put quotes around that every time I write it in my notes. You should know that. I have contemporary Christianity because I'm not convinced Christianity today is anything I want to do with because it's not even biblical anymore. And so this second point makes people cringe because we live in a society of self-absorbed people. And that is, you know, when, when other little bits become one thing, the social norms become that one thing. 
It becomes an amalgamation or a, a, an umbrella theme in a society. And so now we just, now, now the policies that rule our society reflect the fallenness of man and his flesh, you see. And so the second point on the board is offensive to contemporary Christianity. Because contemporary Christianity fosters self-absorption. As the Spirit pointed out on Thursday, if we follow Jesus' own guidance on church ordinance, protecting others from disruptive sinners in the church, we, believe it or not, are labeled intolerant. Intolerant. Maybe one of you out there is even thinking, well, this guy's a little bit intolerant here. And where does he get off? Suggestion, suggesting he's going to protect the flock by getting up in my grill. That's how Lois speaks. <laughs> See, Lois, I have to pick on you now. You know? <laughs> the context, we are labeled intolerant, which is heinous. The context of forgiveness, the world's version of tolerance has become a Trojan horse for attacks on the church. This part of the context of our life, or this is part of the context of our lives nowadays. To be firm in your godly convictions is to be intolerant, which is a lie. There's a whole host of Christians, I'm sure of it, that would say, well, that seems like a breach of someone's privacy, or that seems like you're being too harsh, or that seems like you're not thinking about the one person. No, I am, and I've forgiven that one person. But there are, I don't know, 50, 100 other people that that one person is selfishly blowing up. So I got to protect those others from that one jackass? You can call me whatever you want, but I say I'm a good shepherd. And trust you, me. Every one of you ought to be grateful. Because there are a number of situations that I've gone through that none of you have any clue about, except you get the fruit of it. Ah. Except you get the fruit of it. So, no matter what you think, I'm here to protect your souls from such lies. That is my job. The best I can do is to equip you as saints with the Word of God for the work of service. That's Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And additionally, I can remain diligent on your behalf to foster an environment in this church where you may be at peace, where the peace of Christ may rule in your hearts even. I want there to be a place where you can come and have confidence that you can have a good meal in peace. Amen? Yeah, you know what? It, it comes at a cost. Somebody's got to be standing out front with a shield. And when people throw rocks, some of them get by. Do you understand? And the real stubborn ones throw boulders. Or they distract you for a time over here, and they throw one right at your temple. If I sense attacks, I act, and you can count on it. 
If I call you out, it's out of love, I can tell you that. I wouldn't even waste my time if I didn't care. If I call you out, I perceive that you are causing a problem in the church. And I simply won't tolerate it. And if I do ever call you out as a sinner, here's where your heart should be. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. If you ever get called out, some of you is, you know, some of you get called out like regularly. If you're on my leadership team, you get called out pretty regularly. Just, I mean, what are you going to do? I'm trying to look at to whom much is given, what? Much is required. Hebrews 13:17. Obey your leaders. That's the heart you should have if you ever get called out. By yours truly. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Yeah, I'm accountable to God for this stuff. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, it comes right back to you. As the Spirit summarized on Thursday, up here on the board, love and peace preserved, God uses those who, quote, keep watch over your souls, Hebrews 13, 17, along with the word implanted, James 1, 21, in order to equip you for the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. All I can tell you is, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of living in between these things. Somebody's got to get up. Somebody has a calling on their life to be diligent. And then that same person has to go to bed exhausted, exhausted. And then you know what? The next day, that same person gets up, opens their eyes, and is already, you know, it's like, uh, you know, if you've ever been on vacation from a workplace and you go back and your desk has a stack of stuff on it now. That's what it's like every morning. In my soul... And yours as well. I'm not trying to, I'm just, this is what the Bible gives us, for example. He likes to use uh, shepherds, under-shepherds, as examples. Obviously, you have to imitate their faith, so there's a connection there in your own lives. But here's what he's been saying. Do you see how practical God is? Do you see how practical He is? I hope you do. All of these things imply activity. In fact, God's love is so practical, if we go back to the, the root cause of all of this, it's so practical that He became a man in order to save you. That's how practical God's love is. Practicality in the sphere of God is often expressed in terms of, you ready? Here's the second booyah word of the morning. Practicality in the sphere of God is often expressed in terms of obedience. Oh, here we go. I hate that word. That and patience. Obedience. Is that not a practical thing? Oh, you bet it is. People don't want it to be practical. People want to spiritualize everything or sensationalize things. But no, no, you can't make this practical. But it is. 
Obedience is a practical thing. In other words, the love of God has given us commands to follow so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Just like Matthew 6. Okay, those are like those four bullets. Forgive if that doesn't work, if that doesn't work, if that doesn't work. There's a lot of activity going on, right? Round up some witnesses, get the church together. If that doesn't work, throw them out. I'm going to say there's some activity there. I'm going to say there's some practical things that have to actually happen. Is that fair? And if you follow them, that means you are obeying. Oh, darn it. You mean this stuff all glue? Yeah. Obedience. The love of God has given us commands to follow so that we would walk in them. That's Holy Scripture, Ephesians 2.10. The greatest illustration we have with this is with Jesus, who flawlessly obeyed His Father's will. Go to Philippians 2.8. Flawlessly obeyed. None of us can say that. But He is our great illustration Philippians 2.8, go there. <clears throat> Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. Yay, to the point of death. You think there was a practical side to the cross? Do you think getting spikes nailed through your flesh do you think that Jesus considered that a practical thing? Do you think there was like a practicality to his obedience? I think so. To dying, to being separated, being perfect and yet being separated from his Father. I think there's a lot of obedience and I think there's a lot of practicality there. And Jesus Christ said, you've got to pick up your own what? Cross. And bear your own what? Cross. Hmm. You know what? Here's what the Bible says up here on the board. God loves obedience. You may not. Modern, contemporary Christianity definitely does not. But God does. God loves obedience. God demands obedience, actually. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, He doesn't have much tolerance for disobedience. Colossians 3.6 Christ is the polar opposite. Jesus learned obedience from the things which He suffered. Hebrews 5.8 And what's wrapped up in there, we don't have time for that, is there's a cost of obedience. Because if you obey God, you know what? You're going to suffer. Go back to the conversation, the difficult conversation. Um... That's suffering. Is it not? Who, who, wants, who wants to spend their, an hour even contending with someone who's so bad you might have to throw them out of a local assembly? Who wants to contend? That's not suffering? But you know what? God the Father loves obedience. Loves it. Demands it. Loves it. Hold your thumb while we review this last reference. Go to John 10, 17. John 10, 17. It's amazing what 
isn't taught from pulpits anymore. I think that's what's so unbelievable. That it's gotten to the point where people that Christianity isn't actually godly anymore. It's almost like a uh, like a social option. I don't know how to explain it. John ten seventeen. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Well, we just talked about that, and you all agreed that laying down his life was a very practical thing to do and a very obedient thing to do. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I want you to lay down your life. And what did he do? He obeyed flawlessly, even to the point of death. Um, that's pretty practical. You see, so obedience is a very practical thing. And guess what? God loves obedience. God demands obedience. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Christ is the polar opposite. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. God the Father loves obedience. Okay, go back to Philippians 2.8. Philippians 2.8. Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, activity, practicality, even obedience in view. All under the, or within the sphere of love. Look at how practical the word is in Philippians 2.13, to work for his good pleasure. Up here on the board, again, God is practical. When God directs his children to walk a certain way, he expects their obedience. And if they refuse, they must face his wrath. We looked at Ezekiel 20 on Thursday, Old Testament stuff. We looked at Ephesians 5, 6. I'm going to have that for you in a moment. And we also looked at 2 Corinthians 10, 3-9. One of the well-known issues with contemporary, quote, Christianity is that pastors are now afraid, if they're even pastors, pastors are now afraid to preach obedience. It's not popular. It's not popular to preach obedience. Here's love, and obedience is somewhere over there. Well, if you feel like it. No. Obedience is inside the sphere of love. 
And that's how it should be presented. But, up here on the board, Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, void of practice. Oh, you don't have to. I mean, come on. As long as you have the doctrines, right? As long as you know what the word says. Don't worry about fruit. There's no, you know, Jesus didn't worry about, what? Jesus didn't worry about fruit, huh? Really? Talked about an awful lot. He talked about the practical, practical aspects of the spiritual life an awful lot for someone who didn't care about it. He talked an awful lot about others and living for others and behaving even appropriately for the sake of others an awful lot for someone who didn't care about it, supposedly. But that's what's being taught from pulpits. Empty words. Just come here, I'll massage your ego. I'll massage your emotionalism. I might even play a few rock tunes. As long as you massage my wallet. And people are like, yeah, man. I'll pay handsomely for that. And they do. You, you want to know one of the, the, great, the biggest selling things of all time? You ready? Religion. This is how crazy people are. If I put you in bondage as a so-called pastor, if I put you in bondage, if I say, you know what? Tithe. All of you. Right now. 10%. Gross. Not net either. Gross. Before taxes. You all might run for the hills, and I hope you would, but you know what? There'd be a bunch of people would come in. Oh, cool. I get to pay for my religion. I need to pay because that's flesh. One of the biggest selling products in the history of mankind is religion. But here's a crazy thing. They're selling lies. I can't sell the truth. I can't give the truth away. Look around. I can't give the truth away. But if I started selling it, people would come in droves. It's unbelievable. What the heck does that even mean? I know what it means. You figure it out. People would rather pay handsomely for empty words than the meat of truth in the Word of God because it includes things like obedience. And in lay terms, get your act together because you're messing with everybody else. People don't want to hear that stuff. People just want to go to church, you know. I'll never do that, by the way. That's you doing it to yourselves. It's such a nice message. He's such a nice fella. <laughs> Let no one deceive you with empty words, void of practice. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, the point we are developing is up here on the board. God is practical. Our God is a very practical God. And He has expectations regarding the one thing that keeps us inside. That's two does. Should only be one does. The sphere of peace and love. Obedience. 
All right, let me give you the practical example. The obvious practical example is if everybody here magically, it's not going to happen, but if everybody here magically was flawlessly obedient, there wouldn't be anything but peace and love in this building, right? What's the problem then? Why is there not anything but peace and love in this building? Because of disobedience, of course. That's why. For example, just consider the last two series of lessons. One was titled, How God Enlightens the Eyes of Our Hearts. The answer was essentially, read your Bibles. I mean, how many times have I said that? Sounds like a command. Read your Bibles. Okay, that was the essence of how God enlightens the eyes of our hearts. And now we're on, who will separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nothing. And at the tail end of these lessons, he's been pulling it all together with instruction on love, peace, and forgiveness, each of which have very practical fruit. Because God is practical, His fruit is practical. So concentrate on the big picture now. Try to elevate your thinking. We know that God's intention is to sanctify us, that lessons like this are to sanctify us. Instead of always changing things from without, God promises to sanctify us from within. He doesn't just change that which we see. He does something much more magnificent. He changes our eyesight. So you couldn't even see because you were blind, so you were walking that way. And He changes your eyesight, now you're walking this way. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? There's Jesus over there. I'm going to walk that way. And it's magnificent. And for some of you, just the first part of this lesson is eye-opening. He's changing your prescription. He's letting you see what Scripture says about this or that. Primitives like peace, love, and forgiveness. And then even practical obedience. The writers of the New Testament wrote about this very thing, as we noted in a previous lesson recently. Go to James 1.21. James 1.21. James 1.21. Okay. James spoke an awful lot about doing. James 1.21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, we started that, remember that, back in our previous series, in humility, receive the word implanted. That's how he enlightens our, the eyes of our hearts, fundamentally. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. But once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. I'm going to give you two Greek words to amplify this verse but an effectual doer, this man will be what? Blessed! Can you imagine that? 
God loves practical people. God loves obedience. God is glorified when we bear fruit. Why is that so hard for people to like absorb? You know exactly why. Because they don't want to bear that fruit. They want to bear fruit to the flesh. They want to bear fruit in the world. They want to remain self-absorbed. They don't want to be corrected by a bald guy on a Sunday morning. They don't want to receive instruction from one who's given God-given authority over them. Heck, you can't even get people under a pastor's authority anymore. I can't tell you how many people I'm thinking about right now that refuse that very command. And it's amazing how many people don't say anything, but that's another story. One who looks intently, paracupto, up here on the board, we've seen this in the past, means to bend beside, even to lean over, so as to peer within. Like, what is, okay, you're talking about the sphere of love. What's, what is that? I'm going to strive. I'm going to look for this thing. What is this? Seek and I shall find, right? What is it that, I'm, that the word's talking about with love and forgiveness and, and, and obedience? What is it? And then second, an effectual doer from Ergon means work, task, employment, a deed, action, that which is wrought or made, a work. Yeah, a real work, a real thing to do something. And uh, before we go any further, um, I want to show you something on looks intently. Uh, I have to share a visual with you that I had uh, previously. Go to Luke. Hold your thumb there. Go to Luke 19.1. So this idea of looking intently is such a physical example of what we should be doing figuratively or, or spiritually. I hope you know that in context there, that is a, uh, a, a spiritual issue to look intently. But here is a spiritual slash physical illustration Luke 19.1, to look intently. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Not everybody's favorite person. Okay? Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. Okay, so here's the living word of God. Okay? The embodiment of the law of liberty. Fair enough? The law of love. And what's Zacchaeus doing? Looking intently. I want to see. I want to see. This guy's climbing stuff. Right? He's climbing. When's the last time you guys even figuratively climbed anything in your head to look intently at the perfect law? Right? You, most of you are like, eh. <laughs> Twinkie. Eh. I almost fell over. Starbucks. Right? Eh. Five-hour energy. I got Who's got how am I going to keep this up? Oh. Here's a guy who's climbing stuff just to see the living word. Look intently. And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. Again, Zacchaeus was looking intently at the perfect law, the embodiment. 
Only in this case, of course, he was looking at the very manifestation, Jesus Christ. For he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Oh, no way. Yep. Saw you climbing a tree over there. Looks like someone wants to see me. Looks like someone's looking intently. Seek and you shall what? Find. Nice visual, huh? Go back to James 125. James 125. But the one uh, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Again, up there on the board, from ergon means to work, task, employment, a deed, action, that which is wrought or made, a work. That's from Strong's. But an effectual doer, this man will be blessed. Don't forget that. Don't forget what's being said here. Someone who looks intently and is an effectual doer. That's a person who looks for what? The commandments of God. How am I supposed to live as this believer? I know you've changed me. I'm thirsting. Tell me what to do. Where are my marching orders? Give me my marching orders so I can march. I want to do this thing. And when you do that, he blesses you. Any questions? Nope. You know what the problem is? Everybody's looking for a loophole. If everybody just stopped and said, is this really this easy? Should we just be looking for to be obedient to the Lord? Yeah. It's that simple. But you see, nobody wants to be obedient to the Lord. Everybody fights it. But I like my life, you see. I mean, I really like my life. And I'm getting a sense from this passage over here that I'm probably going to have to give some of this stuff up. So? What's the problem? Seriously, what's the problem? In other words, God blesses practical living. Not just learning. This is wonderful. But God blesses practical living. Not just learning. But applying what you learn to life itself. The dynamic battlefield where good and evil collide with cosmic speed and force. It's just collision after collision after collision. And God's just saying, live. Be an effectual doer. Stop going to church and playing church. And then going right back to your life and have no intent whatsoever. That's the person who looks in the mirror and as soon as they turn away, they're done. Come to church. Wow, I got convicted today. Okay, that's good. <gasps> Whoa! Right? Unbelievable. I never noticed. Hold on a second. Oh, wow, I never noticed that war, that pimple over here. Oh, look at that. Turn away. What pimple? What what? world seems to love me. That's all James, it's not, it's not rocket science, right? You don't have to be a PhD to understand. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. It only becomes difficult when you let your flesh try to find some loopholes. When you start lawyering. You know, like Satan. Start thinking. Like, 
Hasatan, the great attorney? It's not hard. What do you expect him? What do you expect God to say, seriously? Okay, I'm going to change you. You ready? I'm going I'm to regenerate you. Okay? Now just sit there and rot. Does this sound like... Does this sound like I'm going to do all this work in you. I'm going to promise I'm going to change you so that you can walk in my statutes. But don't worry about it. Just sit there. We're cool. That's what's being taught right now from pulpits across the country. Just come on a Thursday. Whoa! See you later. You've got to come to this one. Oh, my word. It's a big emotional upheaval. The whole thing is meant to just get emotionalism. Oh, mosh pit. You have 70-year-old people in the mosh pit, right? Whoa, and it was, oh, and it's, whoa, oh my God, I'm so convicted. That was unbelievable. Was it not? Come to church with me. It's unbelievable. 3,000 people, 30,000 people. Well, let's, pay, let's pay this guy. I heard, this is ridiculous. I'm digressing, but I don't care. Because I went short last weekend, so you're stuck. I heard this. This is unbelievable. I cannot get over this. I'm so angry when I heard this. There's a huge, the biggest church in the world, I think. Just to go to one of their so-called, I don't know, conferences or whatever, $300. You have to buy tickets for $300 to go to this concert. It's a concert as well, but to go to one of these things. What are you, what's going on? What's going on? It's unbelievable. So I was convicted. It's going to be $50 per Sunday. What? Oh, you guys have a problem with that? Why not? It's disgusting, right? You'd be like, what in the... This is foul. But you know what? If I, if I started teaching legalism and this and that and the other, and we got Brian back up here with his trombone, maybe get Snoop up here, you know what I'm saying? You know, doing his thing, right? People would come in droves to be lied to, and they would pay for it. That's not an effectual doer. God blesses practical living, not just learning, but applying what you learn to life itself. We live on this battlefield, and it's so dynamic, and it's so fast and harsh, James closes out his thoughts with a counterbalance, of course, to the blessings, to the effectual doer. Verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Okay, ready for this? Another practical lesson. I ain't no charge, okay? That was a joke. To visit orphans and widows doesn't happen between your two ears. It actually means, you ready? You put some petrol, some gas, in your car, and you drive. Yeah, imagine that. That's actually doing something. 
Just saying. I mean, like I said, no charge. As James wrote, the person who earnestly desires God's word and to do his will, to him goes the blessings. For example, to pull it all together, supernatural peace. Supernatural peace. You see, you're supposed to spend what a lot of churches call blessings that you're supposed to keep. You're supposed to buy from him gold refined by fire. You're supposed to spend even your earthly earnings in such a way that you can be blessed with peace. It costs money to put gas in a car last time I checked. It costs time and maybe money because now you're out, you got, maybe you've got to get McDonald's if you eat like me, right? To drive to the, to the person's house. Maybe you want to bring them a flower. I don't know. Maybe you want to buy them a little card. There's another. Well, nowadays, it's like $4 for a card. That's why people get homemade ones with me. I do the turkey thing. I put my hand there. I make like a face. Hey, I'm just kidding. <laughs> homemade one with love, right? <laughs> yes, that's, that's one of the things that the Bible talks about. That's one of the trade-offs, right? So, in closing, I guess, because we're out of time, I, don't, I got notes, but whatever. Such is my motivation, if you haven't figured it out, on behalf of all of you. I want you to be living proof of God's power through believers. I want you to be living proof of the supernatural abilities of God. I want the Word implanted in you so that you might see things in a manner consistent with God and act on them as well. And then, of course, I want you all to know that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God, nor His family. I want you all to have this faith that I'm hoping you, at least on occasion, can see in me, up here on the board. Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, considering it, imitate their faith. I don't mind if you look at my faith. I, I hope you do, because I know it's genuine. It's not perfect, but it's genuine. And I share those weird stories. All right, who's doing that? Tom, was that you? Yeah, don't please. I share those weird stories, not because I want you to focus on this vessel. i got enough focus on me, thank you very much. He makes me do that stuff, not because it's about Ed Collins. He's, it's, it's as much about just to say, what the heck, is he for real? What's he doing standing there? I, I don't know. Some days I wish I wasn't, you know what I'm saying, tongue-in-cheek. What's he doing standing there? If he can do it, I can do it. That's right. If I can put up with a church, then you can put up with your life. How about that? If I can put up with all of you and still stand behind this pulpit with, some, with peace, with genuine peace, which I have, by the way, then you can in your life. And that's what this means. Imitate their faith. I speak as Paul wrote. Go to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Let me just really quickly 
lie to you some more as if I'm going to um, finish and I'm not. Boy, I'm having fun up here, and you guys are not finding me funny at all. <laughs> hey, from my perspective, it's funny. <laughs> i got to take my things when I can get them, you know. Take my shots when I can get them. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which, is, which also performs its work in you who believe. That's what I want for you. I just want you to have the word, not Ed. I could be gone. You guys, I could be gone tomorrow. You guys, you guys, I could be gone tomorrow. It's not about Ed Collins. It's about the Word of God doing work in you. That's all I want. I want you to accept it when I when you read it and it's obvious. Stop playing games. Obey it, so that you can have blessings. So that you can have peace, a supernatural peace that guards your hearts even. What do you think a shepherd wants? Eat. Eat sheep, right? Drag you over here. Eat. Get out of the thicket, Brendan. He's like, yeah, but at least I got my guitar. Get out of the thicket. Get over here. Now eat this. Now, all right, now let's go over here. Let's eat this. Why? Energeto. Because it performs its work in you who believe. Means I work, am operative, am at work, am made to work, accomplish, mid. I work, display activity. Display work. That's the middle voice. I work, display activity even. In other words, the word of God, when you receive it, when it's implanted... It actually displays fruit. You might look in the mirror instead of going in some weird emotional way, oh my God! You might go, oh my God. I haven't seen that peace on my face in maybe ever. Ten years ago, I'd be looking at myself, I'd be like... And today I'm like... That's pretty rad. Why? That's the importance of the word implanted. That's how it works. And a shepherd's desire to see this for the sanctification of God's own children. I promise I'm stopping right now. I just want to share something with you. That's it. I want nothing more than to see God's grace at work in you. Are we family or not? Some of you are like, I guess so. <laughs> then let us love one another as family does. Openly, honestly, plainly. Amen? Amen. All right, let's bow our heads. What do you got? Oh, that's right. All right, let's go. Uh, let's, hey, yeah, let's have communion service. <laughs> I was so into the message. Hey, listen, it happens. Are we family or not? Yes. Stop worrying about the bread. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding.
I guess we get the full dose of music. 1 Corinthians 11.23 states, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of our Lord. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as long as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this Incredible privilege. Thank you for reminding us of the primitives in the spiritual life, a life that you've set before us, as dynamic as it is, Father, filled with opportunities for collisions with each other through sin and transgression. But above all that, Father, is a supernatural ability that you've given us to remain at peace through an expression of your love by means of your grace and mercy and forgiveness. Father, we're so very grateful for these things. We just ask for continued peace and love as we take what we've learned this morning out to a world that just seems to be accelerating away from your Son. Father, may we express your own patience as we watch these things unfold. May we dig deep into the wellspring of your own love to bring the gospel to them. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.